0: Hi, everyone. I'm Ruth, and I am here with my dear friend, Patty. We have been meaning to do this interview or have this conversation for ages now. We have been through, I don't even know how much, together and parallelly. We met online at a time when people did not meet online at some crazy website that I'm just going to have to let you wait to find out what that was because it's its sort of our thing Patty has been a dear friend and confidant of mine. She knows me better than a lot of people on this planet and in way, understands me in ways that a lot of my, I don't want to say non-sober friends, but in a lot of the way my non-sober friends don't know or understand what it's like to be a sober woman. So, Patty... Thank you Hi, so much for coming on and being on my podcast. In a lot of ways, you are my ideal guest. And, Thank you. But I'm just thinking, where would you like to start? Normally, this is where I ask a question to set you at ease. And the question generally goes, what's your go-to order at your favorite hometown restaurant? And I think we'll start with that just because I, I know where you're from and about you, but let's give people listening a chance to understand where you are and where you're from.
1: My go-to order at my favorite go-to restaurant, at my favorite hometown restaurant, would have to be half a Greek salad, feta, house dressing, meatless, plus chicken. So <laughs> if that makes sense That's to that you. That is so <laughs>
0: healthy. Everybody else says pizza. <laughs>
1: Well, pizza goes along with that large pepperoni pizza. The rest of my family eats that, and I usually take a slice after I'm done with Greek salad. But um,
0: and where is your hometown?
1: It is in South Glastonbury, Connecticut, and uh, it's uh, outside of Hartford, medium-sized city. We're not in the New York City suburbs part of Connecticut. We're more in the the rural kind of the burbs.
0: It's a beautiful I like, area. I like it. Yeah, Thank no. you. It yeah. is. We
1: have rolling hills. We have fall right now. We've got the leaves starting to turn. It is beautiful.
0: And you've got the ocean. We do. We, we do. We do. All right. So let's just go back a couple of years, a couple few years. And I, I would really, I'd have to, I'm not sure if I even know how far to go back, but do you want to tell people how we met
1: Sure, sure. Yeah, this goes back to 04, I believe. Is it 04? 2004, yeah. And uh, from my own perspective, I was uh, beginning to write a little bit and starting to formulate rhymes and poems in my head. Don't know if that was part of my late stage (laughs) alcohol story but uh, <laughs> I was starting to to write a lot and I was looking for like-minded folks to I don't know if I just wanted to post some of the stuff that I I wrote but uh, found online and as you said this is before as I say Facebook was still a wet dream and some co-eds uh, <laughs> coeds I think you know, Mark Zuckerberg
0: was probably in high school when we, uh, when we perhaps, did this. Yeah.
1: Perhaps. But there wasn't as much online interaction in 04. So I'm not quite sure how I found it, but I found uh, poets.org, I believe it was, or poets.com. I think it Poets.com. And this was a place where you could join up. You could post your poems. They would come through in a feed. People would rate them, give you stars or I think they were awards I can't even remember stars but
0: one to five stars
1: one to five stars and the best thing was when they would give you good criticism back on it right constructive criticism and there were a lot of sycophants on there that would find somebody they liked or they thought was cute by their picture and they would just blah, 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 everything is five stars and that just made me barf. But um, then you started to see that there were a few souls around the globe, and this really was global. It really that was. That had something really, really helpful and positive to say about how you wrote something, how you could make it stronger. And I just was blown away. And I started to learn from these people. And I don't know which one of the group was first. I think this group was forming maybe before I got on, but Ruth was one of those people in this smaller group of real poets inside this poet universe from the world. And um, we just became really, really tight. I would Mm -hmm. say... I don't know. At any time, there were between like ten to twenty people in this. The core group was maybe about ten, and and dear dear friend Leanne from mm-hmm. Australia, who who really was, I think, the the biggest catalyst for this group to have fun and to just aspire to excellence and aspire to growth. Um, and nobody was like the king or the, the leader, we just all inspired each other. We started to do all of these uh, challenges, like right. oh, let's write a Villanelle or let's write a Rondeau, which I had no idea what those were, but we really just, it was a, a group that came together. And through that, through writing, through poetry, and through exchanging that, we exchanged so much more than just our writing. And we got to know each other really, really deeply online. It was surprising.
0: Well, and Um, I I think if people don't have a context for that sort of thing, but with Facebook and Instagram, I mean, people are tossing up these fabulous pictures of their lives. And then the whole idea is just thumbs up, like, love, all of this. And it, it encourages that sort of really superficial engagement The the website that we were on, there, really, you could put a picture up for your profile, but most people didn't even. So it was really the content of your words and what you wrote. And you find, and this is this is from David White, and he says, now I'm going to see if I can get this straight, is that not all philosophers become poets, but all poets eventually become philosophers, and (laughs) by the by the things that we wrote, just through, through the criticism, and, and that means to critique, not to yes. not to knock down, but we became better writers. And to become a better writer, you really have to connect with something authentic and deep within inside yourself, and that's what we were sharing. And in that way, I think this group of people knew me better than. Well, the people in my life, especially the people in my life at that time, because we were just talking. It was uh, at at that time that not only had poetry grabbed us and 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 held on to us, as as Neruda said, it was at that time poetry found me. But it was also when um, alcoholism, <laughs> we uh, a couple a couple of us noticed that we might have a bit of a problem with with alcoholism.
1: It's
0: a zenith, as it were. A zenith, yes. Yes. And we, it was, I I think what was especially beautiful about the friendships that we made there, and we've both been fortunate enough to meet, um, save for Leanne, most of the people from that group, and what was completely surprising and not surprising was that each time I met one of these people who I had known online for how long had we like talked online oh, a couple of a couple of years anyhow but when I met each one of you it was like oh yeah and it didn't really matter I mean physically you guys all looked about what I thought you would but I felt that I already knew you so well so um, I'll, I'll get you to tell this story but we had been... You know, and we it's not like you spent most of your time chatting. We spent most of our time writing and critiquing each other's poetry. And yes. then we would send notes back and forth. But most of the time, we were critiquing each other's writing. And then you were coming to Chicago. So uh, do you want to tell this story?
1: Sure. Well, I, I think I'm thinking of the same story that you are. But, it was the first um,
0: time we met.
1: The first time we met, it was interesting. So I was coming to Chicago for a work event and Ruth lives outside Chicago. I live on the East coast. And so I was so excited. I said, Ruth, Ruth, I'm coming to Chicago. Um, Can I stay with you part of the time? I'll extend my period, my, or actually, I think I invited you down to stay with me in Chicago. That was it. That was it. Do you want to come
0: into Chicago and stay in my hotel
1: room and we'll do all this fun stuff? (laughs) Yes. And, and here, and I'm uh, telling my husband about it and my husband, God bless him. You know, he had known that I had been obsessed with this online uh, poetry. Site, you know, at least I said it was poetry. He was <laughs> thinking, is this a porn site? <laughs> so interesting about this site. And he knew that I had been meeting a number of people that I felt strongly about. But now I say, I'm going to Chicago and one of them is going to stay with me. And he is a little troubled and he's a little worried. You're meeting someone that you met online. And I had no trepidation whatsoever because I felt like i really knew ruth through and through and that was um that was spot on uh intuition on my part and uh i never it, looked back
0: I, I you know it's funny i felt the same and I, I got the same feedback are you nuts that's how people get murdered you're meeting someone in chicago and you're going to stay in their hotel room You know, people didn't do that then. And I remember when I first saw you at the airport and I thought, oh, there she is. And I knew you, you know, I just, I knew you. But, you know, I kind of got ahead of myself there because I was just so excited about telling that part. We'll we'll come back to the Chicago story because the Chicago story, I'm not sure if we can tell all parts of the Chicago story and keep my clean lyrics. (laughs) thing for the podcast but when you had come to Chicago how long had you been sober
1: uh it was well let's see it was less than seven months because it was after I got sober and before you did
0: And before that's right
1: just did the math on that so I had maybe been sober for a few months when this that meeting occurred And so very, very new in um, the sober AF part. Maybe I was sober and learning the AF part. Uh,
0: (laughs) (laughs) The sober and fun, what we want to say. And fun.
1: Sober and fun, which is the life that I lead now heartily.
0: So... I remember, again, I can still remember looking at the words, but you put something up on the Poet site about the moment that you realized that you had a drinking problem and the event that happened. I, at the time, I I remember where I was sitting and I remember just staring at my computer screen. At, and we were very raw and vulnerable and open with each other. But this, what you posted um, at that time, I thought was just, it was profound. It was like where I as you know, on my own path, I got sober and didn't tell anybody for six months. You guys knew. Oh. Um, but you you had a very different and incredibly brave and vulnerable and open way of just stating that this is and this is how I'm dealing with it and you did that right from the get-go and I was just I was in awe because at the time you know at the time I knew I had a problem but I just was not I was I was not there yet and I was I was in awe of your bravery so do you remember what you wrote?
1: Yes I do remember what I wrote Well, and my situation was somewhat different than yours in that I had an event that really just hit me over the head like a two by four that made me not be able to hide from myself or others anymore that I had a problem and I needed to make a change. So uh, I just wrote about what had happened. The night before and long story short i had gone to a wake with friends uh it was a a friend's wife who had passed away and we had gone out afterward drinking um gone to their house afterward drinking and it was not too different from the typical drinking that i was doing at that point every night but Um, I got in my car afterward and drove home. And mind you, it's only three or four blocks between our homes. Um, I thought I was okay to drive like I had so many times before, and I caused an accident. So what I, I wrote about that accident. And there was another car involved. Thank God that It was a slow enough speed that the two 16-year-old boys in the car that I hit were not hurt. I was not dead. I was not hurt. My car was totaled. Um, And so I could not hide that event from anyone anymore. Um, But what occurred to me on reflection was the next day when I went to go look at my car and I realized how just totaled it was and that I should by all rights be dead. I was emotionally flat in terms of thinking about myself dead. That really did not rise anything. I was Mm -hmm. kind of thinking, okay, that might've happened. That would be okay. The thing that really got me was thinking about my husband and mostly my three kids. So Mm -hmm. I had three very young kids, six, four, and two at the time. And the thought of me leaving them and leaving my husband to raise them on his own was unacceptable to me. So there was still, I still had such a, a sense of, duty to them and to him that I said that can never happen again I can never get in a car after drinking again because I have shown myself that I don't have good knowledge of what's good driving after a drink and so later as I thought of that um, I knew that the only way to never get in a car again after having a drink was the only way for me at that point in time was to never have a drink again. And so that was the beginning of my sobriety journey. And I pretty much wrote about the event and the accident and some of that reflection and just posted it. And part of my reason for posting that was that, yes, the accident had happened, so I couldn't hide it from my husband, but friends didn't know yet, work didn't know, nobody knew. I knew that it was almost like a little bit of a relief for, okay, my husband knows now. There's maybe a little bit of accountability here. Mm -hmm. I'm going to put this up here so at least my poet friends will know. And But that's still a little bit of my online friends, right? I could compartmentalize you guys a little bit. And so, as well, what I did was I called several of my good friends that morning and, and told them, you know, what had happened. And in the best of intentions the best of intentions, most of them sympathized with me and said, oh, I'm so glad you are all right. I am so glad nothing happened to anyone else. This is great. It could have been any of us. You know, really, maybe you don't have a problem. Really, it was just, it was just bad luck trying to make me feel better about this. I got that from friends I called. I got that from some of that from my husband as well. All really well-meaning all people who loved me and wanted to make me feel better. Um, That was not what I knew I needed at that moment in time. And I continued to call good friends until I got one very good friend (laughs) who um, did not say that all this friend asked me was a series of questions, series of questions about uh, how I felt, how my days were, things that you might find in the doctor's office when you go, questions to ask yourself about whether or not Mm -hmm. you might have a problem with drinking. And by the end of that phone call, This friend had talked to me through um, pouring out every bottle of alcohol in the house down the drain. I had, they tried to talk me into smashing all my wine glasses. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a pack rat and I can't stand throwing things away. So that was a bridge too far, but um, I do credit Uh, that dear friend with really helping me helping launch me on that sobriety path if it if it if it weren't they it could have been someone else at another time but that was the moment in time that I knew that I needed to be very different in order to live a life that was true to the people I loved in my life, and also true to myself. Oh my God, I was suffering. Suffering Mm -hmm. daily, suffering just day after day, feeling the same horrendous waking, hangover, having to go to work, working under those conditions, making an already stressful job, more stressful, coming home, getting my kids, having three kids under the age of six is is stressful anyway, but trying to do it with a hangover. And and hangover just doesn't even do it justice. It was just a continual sense of just being so ill. And and my pattern was, um, I wasn't drunk during the day usually. I mean, it was like after get the kids in bed and down, and then it was ah it's time for that wine and the time for the wine just it it only stopped when I was passed out in bed each night um so that was kind of my pattern but I was going to work I was functioning I had a group of people at work I had uh you know uh good marriage that had been, you know, we had been together at that time for 20 years, um, have a nice house in the suburbs, you know, very, from the outside, I had it all. And from the inside, I was miserable, absolutely miserable.
0: And I think that's the thing. And I did have some very well intentioned friends. But I think that is how most people would respond to that. It's like, Oh, no, no, you don't have a problem. Because you're touching on something that they might feel a little tender about themselves because here you have it all together. I mean, from the outside, your life looks fabulous, beautiful house, great job, fabulous looking kids, you know, cause that's, what's important is how they look. Right. <laughs> um, but, and I, and I think even now it's even harder because if you go on Facebook, everybody's posting about this perfect life they have. So I think now there's even more pressure to continue to appear perfect. And then you talk about making it through the day with the kids and then time for wine. Well, you can get that on T-shirts that you put on children right now. It's, yeah. it's. I don't think the culture has gone anywhere. And I th- I think what we need to keep talking about and keep having conversations about is that, you know, an alcoholic isn't somebody who is sitting in a bar at 10 a.m. in the morning It's. I mean, yes, it could be, but often people who are alcoholic are very high-functioning, lead what looks like on the outside are these really successful lives, people who are very high-achieving, also a little bit, a lot, extremely hard on themselves because they feel that they have to maintain this perfection. And the idea of keeping up and doing everything right. I know with me, it was this whole dichotomy between how I was, you know, I, I come from a family of alcoholics. And somewhere, especially with my brother's struggles, I, I knew inside that I had a problem. But I just and I just could not see a way out of it. And, and that's that's where you get stuck, and yeah, like I said, when I got sober, I didn't tell anybody for six months. I I didn't have a big a, a big event like you did. I, I had a lot of small ones. Because of it, there were very few people who said, "Oh yeah, you know, we'll, we'll support you with this one," because I didn't tell anybody and allow them to support me. Yes, and the the few people that I did were like, "You don't have a problem. You're fine." my now ex would keep bringing alcohol into the house and say, I wasn't an alcoholic and I would very dutifully put it in a milk carton and go two doors down to one of the few people who knew what I was going through and say, Hey, Sean, can you hold these? And (laughs) I can't have this in the house. But yeah, it just, I think it just shows that when we see somebody's life and we think, Oh, well there's somebody who's got it together. There's somebody who has everything and, and they must be so happy. And that isn't, that isn't generally the case.
1: No, it's not. Um, you know, we do a lot to protect ourselves and our image. And, and that's just what we do as people. It's not good nor, nor bad. We have our private selves and we have our uh, professional selves and our friend selves it's just when the distance between those gets so far apart, and that it's really hiding a big problem, that um, that can work against us.
0: So now I was I was going to ask. So you stopped. Was it? You said June. June third. June third. I was 2005. So have you? Now tell me about that journey i mean how how did you actually you you did what your friend said and you got sober, you dumped out all your all the alcohol in the house you would not break your wine glasses fair enough
1: <laughs> but, I would not. Uh, but uh, what did you do after that? Yeah, so um i think I think the series of phone calls was was first. And then I wrote the piece that I posted on our poetry site. And then uh, I believe what I did was I reached out to, by instant message, I reached out to our friend Jillian on the All poet right. site because I knew that she was sober and just asked her about AA or how to get involved in that. So I knew that I needed some help and, and basically, you know, she just gave me the, the courage to, to call up the number and find out where the latest, you know, meeting was. And, uh, I went to my first meeting that night. I didn't know where it was going to go from there. I'll tell you some of the feelings that I had that day about looking into the abyss of sobriety. All of my life from high school on, most of social interactions included drinking. Mm -hmm. Not always to excess, but just everything was centered around alcohol. And we had a lot of friends we'd have either make dinner and it was what were the wine pairings or you go out dancing and you know certainly there's wine to lubricate you know all of those joints so you can dance really well um and so i i really i remember the thing that was most foreign to me was okay i can live i can exist maybe without alcohol but I just had no clue, like my life in front of me was a blank slate. I said, I'm not going to be able to do anything I've ever done in the past. It, you might as well have told me, well, you've been in an accident, and you're going to live, but you don't have legs anymore. Like, you would have to rethink every, how would you go throughout your days? And it, it seems funny now But I just remember that being something that I had no clue how to do. And that was the thing that I think having a community of people that I connected to through mostly through AA at the beginning, that these people were living their lives this way. And so I had many different examples of people who were living sober and they were having fun. Yeah. And and so so that was encouraging. And so those are the first thoughts I had about really, yeah, stepping into the abyss of sobriety.
0: And that's that is a bit what it feels like. And I know with myself there was just this almost unbearable shame that was to me just just crushing I because what I had done is the thing I had watched my dad do and die of and was watching my brother self-destruct his life with and I was I was always going to do so much better than those before me and here I was no different I was
1: let me just stop you right there because now you are doing so much better than those before you
0: oh yeah but- I'm, that was your thought. I it, get it. It was. It was. Well, and I, what? And, and I think part of the reason I'm doing what I do now is just to say I know what that shame feels like, because it is absolutely incapacitating and and unnecessary. And I think and I love the work Brené Brown has done about sort of pulling the curtains back on shame and saying this is what it needs to live and this is why it's not necessary and this is how you go about healing. And I, I just think the work that she's doing is so, so important. Shame is the thing that keeps people drinking. Uh, it's the thing that keeps people small and it keeps people from getting help. And the, you know, the reaching out and getting help um, is just made so much harder with that shame. And I think, you know, you talked about, I forgot about Jillian. Um, you reached out to Jillian. I reached out to you and I reached out to Peter, who was, I, I don't know, is it poets and alcoholism? Because <laughs> <You know? laughs> at the time he had been sober Torture for forty. That's, that's it. That's it. And yet, yet I've still managed to create in sobriety. So I think that myth is a little debunked as well. But he and I and I was just, you know, I had stopped and I was I was going through alcohol withdrawal where I was putting my uh, I had to wear my clothes inside out because my skin was so sensitive that it just everything hurt. It felt like my skin was on inside out and I was just procrastinating and doing. I was, oh, Peter, let's just talk about this online. I don't have to do anything else. And finally, he said to me, get to a meeting. And after you've done that, talk to me. And then just cut me off and in a lot of ways, having you go first and then having him not enable me because I was all set to just be coddled and enabled and to be felt sorry for. That was the other thing. I mean, I had Olympic grade skills on feeling sorry for myself. Oh, my God. I mean, seriously. Oh yeah, I was I was I was a champion at feeling sorry for myself. And, you know, I, I can still do it. We and I this is I don't know whether it comes in your recovery circles, but we would talk about having a pity party and oh, yeah. getting out the black balloons and the black streamers and putting on the little black party hat and saying, Okay, we're gonna have a party now and I'm gonna feel sorry for myself, but I'm only gonna do it for a couple of hours and then after that I have to get back up and just deal with life. Damn it.
1: Yeah. Get get (laughs) off the pity pot. And, uh, you know, you let yourself do that for a little bit. But that is just that's a block to getting better. It's a block to feeling good. It's a block to feel to living your life. So, uh, well, I think, too.
0: Yeah, the the whole good old pity pot. But when you feel sorry for yourself, what you're doing is you're taking and you're giving your power to other to other people, to other circumstances, and not You know, living in your power yourself. Ego-wise is a little easier to do because, well, this isn't my fault. If so-and-so had behaved better, then I'd be happy. Or if I I had a little more money, then I could be happy. Or I wouldn't need to drink if so-and-so didn't do this. And it's easy. I mean, that that makes it super easy. It's not my fault. I'm the victim here, people. Poor me. (laughs) ultimately what you do is up to you and how you behave and how you think is up to you. And that was, yeah, that was hard. That was, that was, that was hard for me. I really didn't realize it took me a hot minute to realize how invested I was in feeling sorry for myself and how attached I was to powerlessness. Because from there, you know, I didn't have to be responsible.
1: Yeah. Yeah you know so you' talking about shame just makes me think a little bit more about that um shame it can it can send you down two parallel paths one that is helpful and one not so helpful because in a way so shame is about blaming yourself right yeah shame like oh my god I have done these things and I am No one else in the world does these things and I have brought it on myself.
0: Well, the difference Um, too is also not, I have done this, but I am bad. I am not
1: worthy. It's not, it's, 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 it's internal. So, so in some ways getting healthy is getting a balance between this is not necessarily me and all of my identity and it's not, all because of steps i have taken maybe yes i have definitely contributed to it but the conditions were set up and a lot of perfect storm conditions have come together and the steps that i have taken together with that perfect storm have me in this place and and that is how I was able to sort of dissolve some of that shame enough. But truthfully, left to my own devices, if, if I didn't have an event that I couldn't hide anymore, I'm not sure if I would have done it myself. The fact that as a result of that accident, I ultimately lost my license for about four months. Think about this. I have a job and three little kids that are going to daycare every day and my husband has a job and i cannot drive i mean that was a well-oiled scheduled machine between who's doing drop-offs pickups and my husband now needed to do all of that and drive me everywhere that i needed to go so there was shame associated with that but it's not until you can bring that shame out in the open Mm -hmm. that you can start to to dissolve it. And so that, that was my path.
0: I I, I honestly think more and more conversations are needed about shame. So what would you say would be some of the more startling, less things that you wouldn't have thought are different in your life since you've been sober and in your life, your family life? before you were sober, your relationship with your kids, with Joe, with your friends?
1: Yeah, that's a pretty deep question. What I know about before I got sober, so uh, my relationships with my kids were, let's just say, and, and with my husband, were very thin, meaning... I was skating through every day, just surviving through it, and making sure things got done that needed to get done. Like people were fed, people had clothes on. They might be inside out, but they had clothes on. And um, and Joe and I were pretty much, you know, managing all those juggling balls that were up in the air. And so there wasn't a lot. Of relating going on, there was just doing going on, and and truthfully, with the um, the challenge of how I felt every day, um, how miserable I was, I could see that just wasn't going to get better. And truthfully, I don't know how I could have survived through their entire childhoods that way. Something was going to give one way or another. Maybe I wouldn't be there. So so once. I got through the white knuckling of figuring out how it was gonna feel being sober, and sober and fun. Difference in my relationships is is night and day. Just in that you know we actually talk once in a while, and hmm. we enjoy things together. Um, with the kids, it's as simple as what's my daughter's favorite show and sitting down and enjoying four weddings and laughing through it with her and, and getting to know a little bit of what's going on in their minds to, to understand who these people are that are, are coming into being that are, that are growing into themselves. And so Without that, uh, without sobriety, it would have stayed thin, just mm-hmm. thin on all relationships.
0: Now, do your kids know about the path that you took? I mean, they were young at the, when you started, but how how have you shared your sobriety with them or your journey?
1: Yes, yes. So my kids do know about my journey and that I am grateful, sober, recovering alcoholic. And I'm trying to, I don't remember the exact ages they were when I shared that with them, but I believe that when each of them got to middle school, they go through that DARE program, Mm -hmm. the, the, the drugs and alcohol program in school. And, and so the, the easiest way that I shared it, I remember sharing it with, with Katie, my oldest was I shared with them home that I posted the day after. Oh,
0: that's handy.
1: So yeah, it was, it was very handy. And so I just let them read that and just told them that my life is so great. And it was hard for a while. But I know that just for me, not anyone else, but I know that for me, alcohol, no longer is my friend, it is a poison, just as if I were a diabetic, you know, sugar's not would not be good for me, I need to stay away from it. And so that is a very great trade I've made in my life, and that I'm really happy about it. And to a to a kid, they all came back with some version of I'm really proud of you, mom. And Mm -hmm. oh, that just chokes me up right now thinking thinking about that. One thing that strikes me is that, you know, they were pretty young at the time, probably didn't know much about alcoholism at the time. And so me sharing that with them, I had no shame at that point. And they did not associate any shame. They had pride associated with being their mom being a recovering alcoholic. And that just gives me chills right now, because so much different than, you know, as I I don't know when I had the picture of an alcoholic planted in my brain. I we did not have alcoholism in my family that I knew about, but I don't think I had any positive thoughts about someone who had kicked the habit, um, as it were. But they've they've got a realistic and a picture of what I've gone through, and and that's added to. The strength of our relationships, as well.
0: And I think my experience with my kids was the same. That they were, and I, I didn't tell them. I didn't tell really most people for about my first six months. The kids, I probably didn't tell till I had had a year. And they, you know, they, they might have noticed that there wasn't the, you know, perpetual bottle of wine. Or at, at the end, it was Jameson's whiskey. That wasn't there anymore, but it wasn't on their radar. But when I did share with them, it was very much that we're so proud of you, and they they still express that. It's it, it's. I hope uh, one step in the direction of breaking the cycle, having having pride uh, with taking control of your life and and being authentically who you are and. By doing that, there are things that I'm not going to be able to do anymore. That's great because I found a whole bunch of other things that I have as much fun. And, bonus, I remember it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great thing about having fun when you're sober is you can remember it.
1: Absolutely.
0: You know, you, you don't have that. Did I say that? I, yeah. I, yeah. So, you know, on, on that note, I thought it would might, because we were joking about the title of this one would be Sober AF, and we mean sober and fun, just <laughs> putting that out there people, because I, I'm i pretty sure if we did a hashtag Sober AF, we would get a whole bunch of stuff that wasn't and fun. But we've had, I mean, individually and together, quite a lot of fun being sober. Yes. And starting I, with that I, fateful Chicago, when you yes. came into
1: Chicago, and let's we, tell the let's tell the Chicago story. The Chicago story. <laughs> that was so much fun. So we we already talked about how uh, we met. That was the first time we met in real life, IRL. And uh, we were staying together in a, in a hotel in Chicago because I was going to some work event down there some
0: work event yeah
1: and, and we decided that we were gonna go we went to some kind of a vegetarian restaurant that was amazing the green the- zebra the green zebra we went to the right. green zebra what a, what a memory and uh we went to a dance club
0: the funky buddha this,
1: the funky buddha the
0: funky buddha do you remember that
1: <laughs> See, now, you had not gotten sober yet
0: no but i and- wasn't drinking around you
1: Right. And so the interesting thing was, like I said, well, let's try to, I want to dance sober. You know, I had not tried it yet. This is maybe a few months in and I had not gone to a, a dance club. I, I think I had been in places people were drinking around booze, but so let's go try to go to a dance club. And you said, okay, and I'll try it with you. So we were both not drinking. So you were you were trying it on for size. I was. This is my and, trial run. And <laughs> we went there and I remember the bartender getting a little bit annoyed because we kept ordering waters or club sodas or something.
0: They they had that very expensive special, I think it's Voss water that came in the very pretentious oh. bottle. And men kept asking to buy us champagne, and we kept saying, no, we didn't drink, so they bought us this very expensive water. Yes, yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And we got out there, it was kind of just like a mosh pit kind of dancing place, and uh, good music, moved the body, and we were moving, and... Yeah, I think at one point there was someone who really, really took a shine to you. Okay. <laughs> to the gentleman. I'm not over that. <laughs> and, and it was funny because, well, anyway, I'm not going to go too deep into this, but well, at some point we yeah. decided we needed to extricate ourselves from the situation. And we oh my ran God. Laughing from the bar and ran down the street, probably with our boss waters and but do you know what's funny people?
0: about that? Had we been drinking, that evening would have ended differently.
1: Yes, it would have. Not in a good way.
0: Right, because that gentleman, I remember him quite quite well, one of the bonuses of being sober, well, at the time just not drinking, but um, was, yeah, he was a little more amorous than I was comfortable with. and being sober, it was good. We're out of here. If, had, and, had I been drunk, it wouldn't have gone that way.
1: Very good point. but I, I remember I, we we had a great time dancing up to that point I and mean, we had spent some time there and and uh, so I mean, I didn't feel the need to drink and we were having fun. so that was just a little bit of that was when it was time to go, but definitely was a much better ending to that night had had you or I been drinking.
0: Right. And then the next morning we got up. And felt great. And we went shopping.
1: I remember a shopping trip we did in Provincetown. Oh, that was was a
0: whole other sober shopping trip, but a similar theme.
1: (laughs) 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 Next (laughs) adventure. And they will not
0: be going up in the show notes. (laughs) So what have we done? We have been to Monterey and San Francisco, California. We've had adventures in Connecticut. We've been to Long Island. We've been to New York City. We went in to see Krishna Da. And yeah, one of one of our more famous ones, at least to you and I, and to all my friends, because I tell the story constantly, was when we were in Provincetown. And uh, that was that was so much fun, but you know any number of these places that that we went to, there was always people drinking around us. There was always that culture, especially in monterey because you know and you've been in Chicago a couple few times now I've been your your corporate date a few times, something i've yes. been i i I'd love being your plus one, but the corporate culture is one, you know, when you, when people go out for dinner, there there's always the cocktail hour. There's always drinks with dinner. And, I mean, that would be another area that your life would have changed completely is that that whole drinking culture, you still had to work. You still had to go to these events. You still had to network and do all of that. But now you had to do it sober
1: yeah. and in a way that yeah. doesn't
0: call, you know, attract too much attention to yourself
1: yeah yeah and uh after I got sober and got through got through a number of things with my friends where you know I said no I'm not drinking and then I realized that I could hang out with them while they were drinking and nobody was going to really push me as long as my friends got it but now you go into situations like the corporate world where you don't really need to or want to tell your whole story but you just want to be able to continue to, to go to those functions. And and I found that it was hard at first because I was more cognizant of what was in my glass than than anyone else. But mm-hmm. I realized after uh, a while that very few people really, they're just worried about what's in their glass, right? Mm-hmm. And and I would get some people asking and trying to, you know, pour me a glass of wine. And if I, if they it, I just would sort of ignore it there and move on to something else. And uh, usually the less said, the better. And, um, but I I had gotten to a point where I was comfortable and I was not in like a major craving mode whenever I was around that. I was very blessed in that, you know, when I got through some, after the first few white knuckle months let's say six months I was not plagued with horrendous cravings all the time not to say that they could not come back and once in a while I'll get something but I've I've built up enough strength enough reserves in my desire to not have that to me poison in my system that that I have been successful at this point in in just getting rid of those cravings. So it would be a whole different situation if I needed to be in a corporate situation with all these functions, with everybody drinking, if I were still really craving and trying to stay away from the alcohol. For me, it's more like just being able to make it a non-issue in those situations.
0: And I think, too, I think what's important that has helped me the most is remembering that there isn't any problem that I have that a drink wouldn't make worse. Yes. <laughs> Whatever the problem is I, I I'm having, and however uncomfortable and how much I don't want to be uncomfortable, that drinking would always make it worse. There have been times, especially with my journey with my son and then losing my brother, and you know, the things that you go through in life that are that are very painful, where I've actually had to pull that up and say, it would make it worse. You've got to stay and you've got to be uncomfortable. And this is why yoga has been such a a cornerstone for me is because the whole thing with yoga is being in the present moment. And it's okay to be in the present moment, be uncomfortable, and then to breathe slowly and deeply through that. And that I think is probably the biggest tool that I have, that it's okay to be uncomfortable and you can breathe through it. And you're a yoga teacher as well. We didn't even touch on that.
1: that. That came from my first year of sobriety. I, when I got sober, I knew I needed to pull as many tools as I could together to help right. me through this. And uh, early on, the meditation was a huge, mm-hmm. um, a huge thing that I just my mind was crazy once I got sober and. And so I used meditation, which led me into a few yoga classes. And I remember being in like first or second yoga class and my body and my mind just kind of went, (laughs) it was wonderful. And so I said, there is something here um, that really is, is bringing together that union of, body, mind, and soul, and I need okay. this, so I went deep, and I went right into yoga teacher training, and I did teach regularly for a while to cement that training, those, those skills with me, and I enjoyed it, but um, I don't teach regularly right now, but the main reason why I went through that yoga teacher training was to deeply, uh, understand that and have those skills for myself. So to be very selfish, you know, it was a personal journey. And I know I have that skill within me and, and I bring it out for myself and I bring it out for others. Mm -hmm. Um, at some point, you know, I, I, substitute, teach a class here and there, but yoga and meditation are ways that I'll tell you what it did for me all the time. You know, you're supposed to mature, through your teens and through your 20s and your 30s, you grow up, right? And part of that is going through experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, the only way you mature is if you actually experience those experiences. Mm-hmm. But if each time you have an experience and you say, I'm stressed out, I'm uncomfortable, so I'm going to have that, oh, I'm going to relax with that glass of wine or that beer or whatever, you're not really experiencing those experiences, you're just getting past it. And so so you're just numbing those feelings instead of really processing them and incorporating them into who you are. And so after getting sober, one of the most painful things that most people experience is that all of this life that happens, you're not able to turn off the emotions and numb your feelings and just make the emotions go away until they're, until they're gone. You have to actually sit through them and experience them. And so I really think that at 43, when I got sober, I was probably about the age of, maybe I was up to 23, (laughs) but I had about 20 years of maturing to do. And um, so so that's pretty painful. And so the, the meditation and the yoga, the practice of sitting with discomfort, breathing through it and knowing you're going to be okay. It's just discomfort. It's just emotional discomfort or physical discomfort. You're going to be okay. Helped me to mature. Maybe I'm up to 33 right now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, well, if you ask my kids... What do they um, say? I'm, I'm like 12, as in, Mom, are you like 12? And I, yeah. <laughs> but no, I, I completely agree. You know, you yeah. just, you delay. Life is just going to keep coming. And if you numb out and don't deal with it and don't deal with it, I know, especially my own experience has been if, you know, a situation comes up in my life and I push it down and don't deal with it, it comes back. But it doesn't come back like it did before. It comes back a little bit bigger and a little bit harder. And if I push it down again, well, eventually, and and I've been hit by this two by four a few times, is life will deliver that message to me in an increasingly painful way until I stop. And I say, all right, I'm going to have to deal with this. It's like that book going on a bear hunt. Do you remember? I I read it to my kids all the time. And it was like, you know, we're going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. Hey, maybe this isn't so politically correct anymore. Um, (laughs) And then it's like, and then you come up to say a field of grass. It's this great big, huge field of grass. And it's like, can't go over it, can't go under it, can't go around it. Oh no, we gotta go through it. And the book you go through the field of grass and then it's like swishy swashy, swishy, swashy, swishy, swashy. And then you have to go through the mud, which is slump, slump, slump. But the whole thing is you come up to this obstacle and it's like, I I can't get around it. I can't go over it, I can't go under it, I can't go around it. Damn it, I'm gonna have to go through it. And I I swear this children's book has come up in my life more times in my 40s and 50s (laughs) because it's like, damn, I'm just going to have to go through this.
1: Got to go through it.
0: Yeah. And you've read Pema Children. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. It is hilarious. I mean, poetry, yoga, alcoholism, fabulousness. I mean, we
1: have so much in common. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Curly hair. Um, yes. Yes. And I would say though that when I when I do say that, yeah, I've probably gotten up to about age thirty three. Um, definitely, it's a continuing process. I mean, I I I don't think any of us is done. And I, you know, I don't always behave, and and sometimes want to be a teenager again, and mm-hmm. um, that usually brings pain of some sort. And so I am. Still maturing, and I, I have to do the same dumb things over and over until I decide what is the most. Till I learn a different way, uh, the more the more healthy and fabulous way of incorporating whatever this fun is into my life in a healthy way, instead of just being selfish and, and whatever immature way I want to experience life is. Um,
0: right. Well, and I think with life, somewhere along the line, you know, I got the message that the world was here to entertain me and <laughs> that people should step up and basically entertain me. Let me tell you, the disappointment that attitude can set you up for because that's not what life is for, and that's not why I'm here. And ultimately, the reason that I'm here is to be of service. The world owes me nothing. Nobody owes me anything. And I think that, you talk about growing up, that one was like, damn, well... But in in the same way, I mean, you talk about this is an always, you know, we always keep growing. We're always going to do this in some way. Actually, in a really big way, that's a huge relief to me. I mean, thank God, because I used to think I needed to have it all figured out. In my 30s and 40s, it was like, well, I got to know everything. I got to get everything right. I have to be absolutely spot on and perfect to be anything else is unsuccessful. And if I feel like I'm anything else, I'm going to hide that and I'm going to numb that because that's, that's not what I was going to do with my life. I was going to be perfect and successful and do everything right. We all know how that turned out.
1: (laughs) That, that takes me to similar vein. I was in, I think before I got sober, I was pretty successful at this illusion on the outside that I, not that I was perfect, but pretty damn near, right? <laughs> in the work world, successful, my kids, all of this, which is BS. But I thought that in order to continue to be successful at work, I had to always have all the answers and a portray that I was, uh, you know, I knew everything. And When I got sober, especially the first six months, I just was having a really hard time hanging on and just getting through through days. It was not easy. My emotions were all over the place. I was not able to keep my emotions in check at work. Not that we always have to be a robot at work, but you can't break down crying in meetings with the VPs. So nice. no. No, <laughs> so once again something that I you know I couldn't hide that, right? And so I I asked for a change because at the time I had I was managing about four different people who were very highly intelligent, very highly successful, wonderful, wonderful group of people while who looked to me to manage their careers and manage our work and all that at the same time that I had three small little children that I needed to manage their lives. And at the same time that I was trying to get sober, you know, something had to give. So I asked for a change. And so for a while, I, uh, I went into, uh, for a long time, I went into a role where I didn't have people reporting to me and that was absolutely the right thing. And it, it, uh, That was just one step on a a windy road in my career that was it a sidestep? Yeah. And did I not reach the same level as far as what corporate sees as levels of success and grade levels because of that? It probably because of some of those choices, I didn't get to the level, but I definitely followed a path where I, Was able to contribute to my highest purpose at at work at that job. And I stayed in that, you know, with that company for many more years. But it was really, once again, saying, This is not for me. I can't really do this right now. I don't want to do this right now. I am not perfect. Uh, I need to do something else. And when I did that, it freed me. In all of my other interactions at work since then, I've been so much more open to saying, I don't know, I'm not sure. Oh, yeah. Who knows this? It, 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 that is so freeing. So much growth happened as a result of that. Is Sometimes it, you just have to be pushed into that corner. Uh, to break through the walls and get to some other room.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I, I I just love that being able to say, I, I don't know, you know, I'm not the best person to answer that. Uh, Let me look into that. The, the idea that, It's okay not to know everything, and it's okay not to be perfect, and it's okay to make mistakes. Um, I was talking about Pema Chodron and I, and Pema Chodron and I have a lot of conversations, only she's never there. Her whole thing about leaning into discomfort, and I I swear I always experience the, the most intense stuff in the car. My steering wheel and I have got to really, if my steering wheel could talk... But I have had moments where I'm leaning in the car going, all right, Pema, I'm leaning into the discomfort. You said it would go away. It's still here. But it's it's been a whole new way of, of looking at life not going your way and not having the answers and being okay with that. And I've just recently read her. It's just a, a book about her commencement speech that she gave at her granddaughter's commencement. And it's called fail, fail again, fail better, or some version of that. And she talks about how we have to re-examine our relationship to failure as as individuals and as a society. Because we're so failure-adverse, or if we think if we don't do something perfectly the first time, or if we get it wrong, then that's the end. But what failure is, it's this rich place where we can learn and we need to reexamine our relationship to failure and not being perfect and change that conversation with ourselves and with society and again i think this will also feed into our dialogue with shame or how we relate to shame i just i have found that to be really helpful because even in recovery for a lot of years i still was like i still got to get everything right I mean, yeah. I still need to do, and, and perfection is just, perfection, procrastination, are just fear in, in different guises. They're, they're just ways to keep you from doing the thing that you're afraid of.
1: Uh, very true.
0: I'm very, I'm very deep sometimes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you know, I have to, I'm just following this thread of uh, people make mistakes, so I, I have to, confess my, my shame at binging an entire series over the last couple of days. There was one really, really funny scene where they're talking about um, a kid who was doing bad things to a, to a hamster with a pencil. Oh, no. Yeah, and, and I mean, that wasn't the funny part. The, Good. The hamster was okay. Okay. I love animals. But the funny thing was one person said, well, that's why they put erasers on the pencils. And she said, "What to, to hurt hamsters?" And she said, "No, because people make mistakes." It was profound when you watched it in the, in the movie. <laughs> anyway, people do make mistakes, and we need to. It, that's normalized. Hopefully, our mistakes do not result in major harm to animals or people. You know, you have to give people a little bit of a break, and we get better each time we do stuff. Expect it. So lowered expectations, right? From the old SNL skits. Lowered expectations. It's the key to a happy life. Don't have unrealistic expectations of uh, of things like when you said the world was there to entertain you. It's really, it's really not. So that's going to be an expectation that that uh, happiness.
0: set you up for failure, which I suppose is a learning opportunity, according to me, about five minutes ago. All right, so let's take a segue here and go back to that trip that we we went uh, out to Provincetown. and we stayed at your friend's place in Long Island, which I, I still look back at the, those days that we had up there as some of the best of my life. It was there was good coffee, there was pie.
1: The Cape, Cape Cod, we stayed in a, a friend's cottage in Chatham and had pie on the beach. Yes, we did. What's better than pie on the beach?
0: I have yet to I have yet to find out. Because quite on and the coffee, the pie and the coffee and our toes in the sand. And and that was that was amazing. But yes, our adventures in in Provincetown where We unsuccessfully tried to be something that or at least tried to pretend to be something that we weren't and how (laughs) we were immediately seen through I mean there was never a moment that we fooled that guy not not even a blink he was like he saw us for what we were which was all right that which was all right and then we did get our tattoos
1: we got some some temporary tattoos I wasn't quite that ready for for that commitment but Ruth and I went into one of the the boost. they were having some sort of affair in, in Provincetown and we, we picked out, I can't remember what we picked out it was a little dragon or something like that. Yeah. We got Matt tattoos. So they, you know, we tried to pass ourselves off as a couple, which, you know, I love you dearly Ruth. But oh honey. Enough. Yeah. Yeah. Me but too. It, it was, <laughs> uh, pull it off. And I think the most, the funniest thing that we encountered in that, was when we went into the the toy shop, the adult toy shop, and they had a little museum in there almost at the beginning. Right. Which was a lot of um memorabilia about uh sex toys and about the history of attitudes about sex. And they had some of the articles about hysteria, what yes. they thought of as hysteria in the the early 1900s and how they how they cured women of hysteria and it involved some mechanical sex Uh, I guess I didn't call them toys they were like medical objects they were medical
0: objects but what 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 a concept giving women orgasms hey yeah (laughs) women will be happier
1: and so we we went in there and tried to pass ourselves off as as a couple and had a lot of fun. We looked at a lot of leather outfits, I think.
0: There was that little curtained area that just yeah. did not seem to provide enough privacy to try on. And, and just in case you know, we did not try on anything. <laughs> but they, the, the store itself was so much fun because it was divided into sections. There was the boy, boy, boy section, girl, girl section, girl-boy section, and I'm probably simplifying this, um, and then there was different consensual types. Uh, there there was some leather, there was some bondage, there was some role-playing, and they all had their own little, little section. And Patty and I, feeling really smug and clever, thought, well, here we are. We're two women. We like each other. We'll pass as a couple. And the gentleman in there looked at us for about a millisecond and took us to the boy girl section.
1: (laughs) He was a very very good salesperson because he could size up his clientele.
0: Oh, he was a very good salesperson because we also walked out with a couple of bags just full of toys.
1: (laughs) And, uh, but, but going back to the theme of this program is that that was so much fun and so much laughter that day and completely sober. And if we had been, drinking and gone in there first of all they probably would have thrown us out because we would have been inappropriate but maybe i wouldn't remember right how funny and fun that was and the guy was delightful
0: he Um, was there was so much that you know so much fun that we had and that we remember driving uh now you're going to name the places better in san francisco where we were in uh, a uh, friend of yours who had, what was it, a, a convertible BMW?
1: Yeah, it was uh, an M series, whatever, the souped up ones. And uh, he acted as our, our tour guide and took us around up over the bridge and to Marin County and to Stinson Beach. And that was wonderful, wonderful days that we had. Uh, yeah.
0: Yeah, so we we have had some seriously good times. And we'll continue to do so. I don't. I don't see us stopping anytime soon.
1: No, we need another. Another. We need a road trip, and we need to get a playlist and like <laughs> turn it way up and just sing really, really loud. And so. I think
0: we need to do it in a convertible Mustang. Okay. Yeah, because I, I have discovered the, just how much fun Mustangs are. I don't think I'll ever own one. But let me tell you, driving one is amazing.
1: It's worth the, the daily upgrade on a rental. Yes.
0: Yes. Okay. I mean, we've talked about so much. And what I what I think, and, and I might put some of this in the show notes, but if you would be open to sending me that piece that you wrote right at the beginning. And I know I went through a period of about a year where, and I, I have it as in a little binder called my drunk poems. And they were all poems about what it was like. Getting sober. But I think I'll put some of that, some of the poetry in the show notes because, in so many ways, poetry, yoga, meditation, along with uh, 12 step programs are what got me sober and keep me sane and sober to this day, as sane as I get. But I I would like to include some of that in the show notes if you're open to it
1: i'm I'm open to it it's uh you can know you find it <laughs> oh, I can find it it it's funny it's it's a little bit more of a it, it, it was a data dump of that day. It's that confessional poetry that is it it's maybe not not Shakespeare but it was raw and true that day and so for this purpose, I'm happy to share it. I'm trying to think of any of the the last thoughts or insights I've had. Recently, that I've wanted to include, and and I know I was having a conversation with a friend recently uh, about the helpfulness or not helpfulness of of AA and and meetings, and everyone finds their own path to sobriety. Uh, for me, diving into AA early on was very instrumental in me getting to a, what I call my my reserve of brainwashing it's helpful brainwashing that mm-hmm. helps me resist like just knowing how better how much better my life is but part of the conversation was about sometimes depending on what room you know we might not feel like we share a lot of background or life circumstance with all the people in that particular room. And and one thing is there are lots of different rooms. (laughs) And, and so some might feel right to us. Some might not, but for me, something that was instrumental in helping me to shed that false illusion of perfection in Mm -hmm. my life was really coming into those rooms and, connecting deeply with people who did have very different life circumstances from me. As we said, I mean, I was a functioning alcoholic, you know, life looked really good from the outside, but there are a lot of people in the rooms that I met that, that had lost everything or had had struggled just in different ways than, than I had um, with life in general. And I found that so, refreshing. I was, I found myself able to just drop that stupid veil of I'm successful, I'm this, I'm that, and just relate to people on a much more intense human way. And so I don't know if that helped, you know, this, this friend that I was having a discussion with think about that differently. AA is not going to be for everybody. It helped me tremendously.
0: I was going to say with AA, and that is how I got sober as well. But I think what you're talking about, one of the, the things that it, it, that helped me is that when you see people who have had vastly different life experiences than you, but ultimately experience the same shame, the same emotions, it's a whole illusion that you're separate and unique and different. That goes away when you realize that we all go through this stuff, that we all suffer, that we all have these these feelings that we don't enjoy. And AA is great and it, it worked for us. But, you know, if, if you're listening to this right now and AA does not vibe with you for whatever reason, it is not the only game in town. You know, there's there's uh, rational recovery. There's lifeboat. There's she recovers, which is a whole uh, women's based uh, recovery system that has ten intentions, and it's it's very beautifully done. So what I would say is, if you go to an AA meeting, if you go to ten, or if you go to you know if you go to a rational recovery, if whatever meeting that you go to, and it doesn't resonate, do not give up try again. Go to a different meeting. Go to that same meeting. You might get different people, but keep trying because you will find your tribe. And your tribe is the group of people that will hold you up and that will support you and will get you through this. And that might be AA. It might be any number of groups. Keep looking. If the first 10 places you go to don't work, go to the 11th, go to the 12th, keep going till you find your tribe. Don't give up because it's so easy to think, well, this doesn't work for me. That's it. I'm done. And it's not the case. You you need to keep trying. And there, there are people out there that will help.
1: Yeah. Find your tribe. How true. Which brings me to AA. I, I think of it as it people in there are no more perfect than the rest of the cross section of the world and I kinda tongue in cheek label it AA as angels and assholes. So <laughs> you get the whole gamut, just like in the rest of life, right? So keep that in mind and don't let any particular person or any particular meeting uh turn you off.
0: Yeah, and, and you will get people, well, you get these wherever you go, but in meetings especially, you will get people who will irritate the crap out of you. And what a marvelous learning experience that is.
1: Just <laughs> another growth experience.
0: Ah, yeah, I usually put a word in front of just another blinking growth experience. But yeah, I mean, that's...
1: I Fun. Another fun growth experience. Just another
0: yeah. fun growth experience. That's it. That's it. We're all about we're all about sober sober and fun. And I think that's an important thing is do not give up. And if you relapse, do not give up. And if you think nobody is listening or that nobody cares, know that that's not true and that you just you have to keep trying. Because There is this fabulousness out there on the other side of uh, drinking, or if alcohol wasn't your drug on the other side of whatever your substance or behavior of choice was, there is an AF after it, and that it doesn't matter when you come into it, it doesn't matter what you've done before, what matters is what you do right now. As far as, as Patty and my uh, sober AF road trips and adventures, you know, we will keep you posted because now we've committed to doing it publicly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we, we have to get out and do it again. But yeah, I, I really I really want to thank you for spending so much of your morning with me going over all of this. I think it's important for people to know that Someone, especially if you looked at your life on the outside, you think, well, there's somebody who's just always headed together and always known what she's doing. And to be open and vulnerable and say, that's not the case. Here, Here's the gift. Here's the learning. Here's what I've been through. And here's how I show up now. And I think that's inspirational and hopefully will be inspirational for uh, people who are listening to this. So I I just so appreciate that. I so appreciate you and then you taking this time.
1: And it's just been fun chatting with you as always. And if there's some inspiration out there, that's the icing on the cake.